It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Greg Gutfeld. I'm Tammy Bruce. I'm Steve Ducey, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Wednesday, August 10th, 2022. I'm Dana Perino. Rising GOP star and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott says division and polarization are not the whole story of America. My life was fed by good people of good conscience who did the right thing because they could, not because of a program. I believe that America is the solution and we need to tell that whole story. I'm Dave Anthony. He helped rescue the interpreter who helped him during the war in Afghanistan. Now, a year later, a U.S. Marine is trying to keep him here away from the Taliban's reach. I mean, Zach will tell you what that what the implications are if, if he gets sent back. What, what What's going to happen if, if uh, he... we get our lost our life? We're going to get die and kill with my whole family. And I'm Will Kane, and I've got the final word on the Fox News rundown. Political division in the United States has been on the rise for years. A recent survey from the American Enterprise Institute found that 55% of Democrats and 53% of Republicans in this country only maintain close social ties with people of their same political party. And the nation is well aware of the negative impact that this political partitioning is having. In a July 538 Ipsos poll, the data showed that Americans' biggest concern behind inflation was polarization. Republican Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina has been outspoken on this issue, saying that unity and optimism should be the focus of America's identity. I look around the country and sometimes, to be honest with you, I look around and what I see is a lot of division and polarization. Senator Scott's book, America, A Redemption Story, was just released this week. What I hope to accomplish through American a Redemption Story is to tell both sides of the ledger where we understand that pain and purpose are sometimes key components to the same formula and that sometimes obstacles precede your opportunities that while we're in hard times, the truth is America, we are resilient. We are tough. We persevere. And in the end we succeed. So my goal was to have a book that met the time that we're in and to tell the whole story, the, the parts of my story, that really are filled with moments of prejudice and discrimination, but also the part of my story that was filled with John Moniz, a Chick-fil-A operator who happened to be white, who saw me and didn't see a black kid. He just saw a kid he could help or Dr. Monty S. Harrington. God bless an orthodontist with two (laughs) front teeth that did not like each other. Dr. Harrington changed the way I saw myself He changed the way I interacted with people. And frankly, he might be the reason why I had the courage to ask the first girl out. And he happened to be white. So so hearing the stories of how Americans just work together, not for a U.S. senator, but for a kid raised in poverty in a single parent household struggling to survive. And my life was fed by good people of good conscience who did the right thing because they could, not because of a program. I believe that America is the solution and we need to tell that whole story. 
you write about how there are some pivotal moments throughout your years that at the time didn't necessarily seem that profound. But when you look back, you say, oh, okay, that was a moment that led to this. You mentioned one of them, and I was very struck by the generosity, the compassion, the skill and the care of your orthodontist. And I wonder if you could just tell people about that story of when you walked in to the office and having that conversation about how were you going to pay? Yeah, so Dr. Monty S. Harrington, who's now gone on to be with the Lord. I was 19 years old. I walked about a mile, mile and a half to his office. I walk in the door, scared to death, no money in my pocket. I just knew that those two front teeth that didn't like each other, they needed to figure out how to get along, and it needed help. Uh, and so I walk up to the desk, and a young lady named Becky treated me with such respect. And I wish I could put in words how much of a difference, something so small meant to me. And then walking in and sitting down and having Dr. Harrington look at my teeth and he's like, let's go to work. But before we go to work, how much can you afford? I think I said $40 a month. And his answer was, whatever you say you can afford, be committed. And he did the work. And so he taught me almost in an instant the importance of individual responsibility. He reinforced in me, yes, dream really big. Unrealistic dreams for me at that time was having braces. He said, you can have what you want. If you work for it, you honor your commitments and you show up. He didn't come pick me up. I had to get there. He didn't make the payments for me. I had to make them. But the miracle of relationships, the the miracle of community is that good people will always stand in the gap. If you ask them and they see you going the extra mile, they will go it with you. Throughout my life, that has been one consistent theme. There's an, there uh, was another theme that I picked up on, and maybe I can bring two issues together here. Um, one is your experience growing up where you have lo- friends of all walks of life. And it was interesting because just recently, the New York Times reported on a study that said that for, especially for minority communities or minority people, if you grow up with friends of lots of different socioeconomic backgrounds and racial makeup and uh, that you will be more successful. And sometimes we congregate in our own neighborhoods, but throughout your book, you talk about these little kindnesses that come to you regardless of your skin color. Yes. And then you also talk about, then you, are now uh, a senator and maybe even before you were a senator. And there was, I think you said liberal media elite. Yes. Would then say things about you that were so outrageous and very offensive. I mean, I'm offended on your behalf, so I can't imagine how you feel, though. I think you have a pretty thick skin. And I would just wonder if you think that America is not actually as polarized in practice as the media tends to suggest. Then no question there, there is a new profit opportunity and it's called conflict. Monetizing conflict is a way of life for too many stations and the liberal elite say the most grotesque things about me and other minority conservatives. And frankly, not only do they say them, there's no resistance to them. It's as if, if you are a liberal, whether you're white or black saying things like, calling Herschel Walker a Negro or, or, or talking about me as Uncle Tim or Uncle Tom. All those things are acceptable. 
If it were a conservative station or a conservative individual, we would be having conversations about racism. We'd have conversations about resignations. But in this day and time, red, i.e. the conservative party, is what we faced as African-Americans in the 60s and the 70s. There's this new form of discrimination that manifests based on your partisan affiliation and big liberal media condones the behavior. And when you condone that kind of discrimination, you actually encourage more of it. I've had to learn to forgive people who make a caricature of me so that they can make a profit. They don't look at what we do. They look at who we are associated with. And that's exactly what we were fighting against. We literally fought to be judged by the content of our character, not the color of our skin. And yet there's been this reversal in the land where liberals suggest that it's not actually the content of your character. It's the color of your skin plus your ideology equals not fit to be here. Um, your chief of staff, whose story I love in this book, and I would love to meet her one day, she comes to you, and this is in chapter 16, page 178. She talks about how the black experience is what the chapter is called. And I've worked with several authors, Charles Krauthammer, Carl Rove, Peggy Noonan, George W. Bush. And each of those authors had to be pushed to write more deeply about yes. an uncomfortable either experience or identity. One of the things you wrote was that racism and prejudice, it's not just a moment that you experience, but that it affects your entire identity. What do you hope people learn about you or other black men from this book, from this chapter? One of the challenges that we have in America is that we're typically spending most of our time in our own shoes and rarely are we in anyone else's shoes. So I wanted to be as transparent and vulnerable as possible so that someone could take a walk in my shoes. And as I've said, tell the whole story, the both sides of the, both sides of the ledge. One part of the ledge though is situations and circumstances where I've been stopped by the, by law enforcement officers for just driving while black more than 20 times the humiliation and the sense of being inferior in the eyes of the law and the, the person wearing the badge and carrying a gun. It, it, it's, it's having someone walk up to your car with a hand on the gun and it scares you and you haven't done anything wrong. And, and it's humiliating and it can be bone crushing, but it creates scar tissue as well. And it can make you bitter towards an entire situation. And frankly, I, I, I've had this conversation with hundreds of folks, African-American men, and they 95 or so have had a similar experience. And that's tough. At the same time, I try to tell the story in my black experience. I tell the story of being elected the student government president the three or four years after there was a race riot at the high school that I ended up going to and becoming the president, 70% white high school. I, I talk about the time that I had a car accident that changed the course of my college experience as a senior in high school. And the police officer who happened to be white showed up and, and, and showed great deference and compassion towards me. So I want people to know the painful part and how it stains your soul as well as the part where you you feel respected and dignity is restored. And I know this has been a bit of a long answer, Dana, but 
we used to hear sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I think the exact opposite might be true. The most powerful force on earth, Proverbs 18, 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. We can do so much good by how we treat our brothers and sisters. All right. My last question is about the last chapter. I thought that the book stuck the landing on page nine. Um, 197, you say, if you're 18 on the 2024 election, imagine your life. You'll be 64 in 2070. What do you want it to look like? I really liked being challenged at the end to, to think that way and just wondered why you decided to end the book with a challenge like that. Yeah, for the last several years, I've been working on America 2030. Uh, I think we spend too much time as elected officials thinking about election cycles if we can get away from thinking about our success as individual candidates and think collectively about our success as a nation, we'll produce more, more of a significant nation with amazing success. And so when I think about uh, in 2018, uh, the first grader who has graduated from high school in 2030 or the 18 year old in 2024 voting for the first time, what are the decisions that you're making to build a country that you're going to leave to your great grandkids, not just to your kids or your grandkids, but your great grandkids. And I think taking the responsibility earlier on is the way that we build a sustainable, resilient America. I could go through every page with you because I found something on every page. We didn't even talk about how you were an amazing entrepreneur, have business experience, and that's how you were able to make a lot of these policy decisions. The Alzheimer's that your grandmother had and your work on the Committee on Aging, all of it comes back to redemption and opportunity. And congratulations on the book. It's really great. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for taking the time to have this conversation. And I hope everyone listening, go out and buy a copy of America, A Redemption Story today. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. This is Will Cain with your Fox News commentary coming up. A year ago, the big story was Afghanistan. The Taliban was taking over the country again, province by province, as U.S. troops were leaving after 20 years of war. The evacuation of thousands of people from Kabul is going to be hard and painful, no matter when it started, when we began. It got even worse August 26th, when suicide bombers hit Kabul's airport, killing 13 U.S. service members and more than 100 Afghan civilians. We will not forgive. We will not forget. Well, by the end of the month, President Biden called the operation overall a success, praising the U.S. military and diplomats. They risked their lives to get American citizens, Afghans who helped us, citizens of our allies and partners and others on board planes and out of the country. One of them able to flee was Ainula Zaki, who goes by Zach. He worked as a translator during the war, helping U.S. troops, becoming friends with one of them, Marine Major Tom Schumann. It, it was tough, one, because my friend was stuck in the middle of all of that. Tom and Zach co-wrote a book just out, Always Faithful, a story of the war in Afghanistan, the fall of Kabul, and the unshakable bond between a Marine and an interpreter. It's something that 
I fought and bled for, and more importantly, my, my Marines and the Marines that I served with fought and bled for, and, and you put all that effort and, and hope into to something and to, to see it unravel, it was, uh, it was really tough. You talked about fought and bled. You lost people that you knew and fought with for years in Afghanistan. Were you fearful you were going to lose Zach as well, the interpreter who you met and fought with on the battlefield? That was a very real and present and pressing fear, uh, starting in July, basically up until the day that he was inside that gate. It was a perpetual state of fear until he was safe within the within the airport. Zach, you for years lived in Afghanistan after working for the U.S. as an interpreter with, with Major Tom Schumann and others. You were under threat always. Always, yeah. Of exactly. death. You and your family, correct? Exactly. Because yes. you were with the U.S., you yes. fought against the Taliban, right? Exactly. I had threat letters, phone calls, and they just uh, threatened me to, you're going to get killed. It's not just threats. Yeah. In the book, you write. Yeah. You were sick. You got really sick, exactly. and, you, and you went to a doctor, and, and the doctor told you that you had been poisoned by yes, the Taliban. exactly. Exactly. I don't know who they are, but I was poisoned. I have a surgery, and all my life was in danger, you know, because I work for the U.S. government, especially for a bright Afghanistan, for my people— you were trying for peace, and and you were hoping that your country could be built up into yeah, something, right? Because exactly. under Taliban rule, you had nothing. We have nothing. Still, I see people just getting die from hungry. They don't have a job. The, the kid, the girls, they don't have school to go to school right now. We build it. The U.S. government build the schools, and they are closed. Taliban burn it. It's no like school. it was when you were young, right? I mean, yeah. all, all the progress you made, it goes back to when you were a kid, because in the book you talk about, mm-hmm. you learned about the attack on 9-11 in the U.S. Exactly. Your teacher was happy. Yeah. Some of the people that were happy because of the tourists at 9-11 on the Trade Center, that was very, very worst moment for the U.S. people. Mm-hmm. The religion, it, it doesn't make any difference. Everyone have their own faith, their own religion. Right. It doesn't matter, but we are Sam Homian. Right. That's why it make me, my family, they, they were very mad on it. Now, 9-11, of course, a different experience for you, Tom. You were in high school when the attack happened. And at that moment, you vowed that you were going to serve. By the end of that day, I, I I never had considered serving prior to 9-11, but before I went to bed that night, I knew that ultimately at some point I would do something about that. So you go, you find your way later, years later, you're in the Marines, you're deployed to Afghanistan, and you're right in it. We were in firefights, IEDs, mines every day for the first hundred days. And so it was extremely kinetic. And it was at the time, it was the deadliest, most dangerous place in the world. That's where you and Zach met. Because Zach, you signed up to be an interpreter to help the U.S. military. Exactly. Zach, you're not trained to fight like that. That was a little bit terrible 
for me and for my team and also the Afghan National Army ANA uh, most of the time they don't doesn't had a uh, much experience right. as the US troop has it right and but that's where you were instrumental right in helping yep. you work with the Afghan soldiers right Tom I mean you need people like Zach to do that right exactly. you had to coordinate sure I mean the the interpreter's role is very you know multifaceted there's the literal translation from English to Pashto or English to Dari that he's providing between me and the locals, me and the Afghan soldiers that I'm partnered with. And then there's the additional layer of cultural interpretation and, and cultural understanding that, that Zach's able to provide so that I know what the norms are, how to interact with the family. And, and so Zach is helping me also interpret that situation in real time. And, and Zach ended up being so much more than just a person who translated for us, though. You parted ways in Afghanistan. You hadn't talked to each other for a couple of years. And then suddenly you get a message from him, right? Yeah. And in, in 2016, it became a reality to him that by remaining in Afghanistan, he would be killed and he couldn't work. He couldn't leave his village. And, and at that point, he had had to make a very tough decision. And, and he started to pursue what's called the Special Immigration Visa Program, which the U.S. set up that if you worked or supported U.S. forces, because we knew you'd be persecuted for that service, we, we we created a visa program and that we would grant you a visa to come to the U.S. after. And so in 2016, Zach reached out to me and said, hey, I'd like to start this program. I'm under continual persecution. I'm receiving death threats, night letters, phone calls. Uh, can you help me with this letter and, and, and application? So that that's what we started. A process full of red tape and dead ends. It's been six years, and Zach still hasn't gotten that visa. But that didn't stop Tom from helping, raising money to get Zach and his wife and children to Kabul, managing to avoid Taliban thugs who've been threatening to try again to kill Zach and did murder other interpreters. But the airport was a nightmare. There were huge crowds and chaos, and Afghans urging other Afghans. I'm telling to the people, stay in their houses, do not come to this area. It's a very, very crazy situation right now. So it was very hard for Zach to get on one of those flights. We tried like three times, and we didn't get succeed to get in because of a lot of crowd and a lot of people who has done work with Americans. Right. Tom and his friend gave my contact, my phone number, and they, they contact me with a WhatsApp and okay. texting me. And So you're constantly in contact trying to get him into that airport. Yeah. Right, right, Tom? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm running an, an operation from my kitchen table, but I, I've got Marines that are working security on the ground, which, again, this is really a, a testament to the bravery of the Marines who held that line at that airport in an impossible situation, and, and I'm trying to coordinate with them, and then I'm trying to coordinate with a friend, uh, Jared, who was an Air Force pilot inside the airport, and working with a number of different folks just to try to get him through that gate. You finally get on a plane. Did your whole family get to get out? Yeah, just only my family. My parents, they're still there in okay. Afghanistan, brothers. Okay. But your children? We are all able. We are here. What's it like here? What do you think of living in the United States? Yeah, the, living here, that's uh, way different than Afghanistan. Yeah. I'm <laughs> because there's a very, very good life, easy, everything. Anything you need, you can get it. 
and we have very good society where I'm living now in San Antonio we have a lot of Afghans it's about 400 families in this program how long can you stay in the US I just about two years two years okay yeah just one year left and I don't know what's gonna happen next so Tom do you think he would have to be sent back I mean technically if he does not is not awarded the special immigration visa it, it would be a very real possibility that he could be deported which would be a nightmare right for all we, we got all the interpreters like Zach out and then we have to send him back does that make sense I mean Zach will tell you what that what the implications are if, if he gets sent back what, what what's going to happen if, if uh, you... we get our lost our life he'll be killed yeah we gotta get die and killed with my whole family your parents have they been threatened they're not not safe they're in afghanistan they cannot go out what are you wanting do you want to be able to stay and become a citizen as um, i did in a lot of interviews and i i asked the president biden and also the official of united states government to help us out find uh, the way so we can stay get the citizenship and so that's what we fight for. So, Tom, are you working on that now? Are you working on that next? Is that part of your next mission to try to keep people like Zach from being sent back? We we currently have an appeal in with his his case. So he received his last denial in March, and that that was, and we have submitted now a final appeal. We'll have to keep uh, hoping that that comes through, and if that doesn't come through, then we'll, we'll find our next option, whether that's asylum or or whatever. But but ultimately. It's frustrating because the the contract for the visa is very clear that he's done his part, and now it's just on us to honor our part of that contract. You can't watch him be sent back to Afghanistan. I would not allow that to happen. The book is always faithful. The story of the war in Afghanistan, the fall of Kabul, and the unshakable bond between a Marine and an interpreter, Major Tom Schumann. And we'll just say, Zach, thank you very much. Congratulations on the book, and we appreciate you uh, joining us, and we wish you the best of luck, Zach. Um, I appreciate it on my side, too, and thanks for, for inviting us and raising my voice. I appreciate that. Thank you, Zach, and thank you, Tom. Thanks, sir. Other news. I'm Gianna Gelosi. They say the key to a successful marriage is happy wife, happy life. And while that might help, there's actually a new formula taking over social media that makes the framework a little bit more specific. It's called the 222 rule. It says to have a date night every two weeks, a weekend away every two months, and a week away every two years. The rule actually originated from a 2015 Reddit thread, but don't let that water down your view of it. A psychoanalyst and marriage counselor told Fox News Digital that she thinks it's an excellent idea and, quote, in order to have a really great marriage, you have to spend time together. She even says she had clients return from the brink of divorce after putting this game plan into practice. Former NFL athlete and international speaker Anthony Trucks and his wife, Christina, say they practiced the 222 rule but didn't even know that they were doing it until hearing about the method. The high school sweethearts married, divorced, and then remarried. Trucks said prioritizing spending time together has been crucial to what is now a very happy, healthy relationship. 
that marriage counselor I mentioned, she has another tip. When you're spending time with your spouse, try not to spend time talking about your troubles and try to have a little fun. Relax and enjoy a nice meal or a movie. For the Fox News Rundown, I'm Gianna Jalosi. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to Tyrus and Tim. Every week, Fox Nation host Tyrus and Fox News contributor Kat Tim give their hot takes, explore weird headlines, and share amusing stories. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Will Kane. What's on your mind? An unprecedented story. An unprecedented moment. In history, is this about documents? Is this about boxes of records for the National Archive? Why did the FBI raid former president and future presidential candidate Donald Trump? As we've heard discussed over the last 24 hours, the FBI is looking through documents that Donald Trump apparently had taken from the National Archives and might have remained in some status as classified. That, therefore, is the subject of a search warrant and a raid on the former president's home at Mar-a-Lago. I do not believe this is about the Presidential Records Act or the National Archives. Why? Because this is simply unprecedented. There is no historical precedent for the raid of anyone who has retained classified documents or leaked classified information to the public. Sandy Berger literally absconded with information tucked into his socks. David Petraeus leaked classified military intelligence to his lover. Was he the subject of a raid? No. What more, even those like Petraeus or Berger who have been pursued, have been pursued simply with charges that amount to misdemeanors, small potatoes. And even the vast majority of those who go sideways with the FBI don't look at even a misdemeanor. Here's some more precedent. What has the FBI done when it comes to Hunter Biden and alleged corruption at the highest levels of the American government? Nothing. What has the FBI done about Hunter Biden, the son of a president, visiting prostitutes and, in the famous words of Stephen A. Smith, smoking crack? Nothing. What's the FBI done about Hillary Clinton? Were her doors busted in for classified information on emails? Nothing. What's the FBI done about known associates of Jeffrey Epstein? Nothing. No, instead, the FBI is interested in President Donald Trump. Why? Not about documents to support the January 6th congressional investigation, but more importantly, as laid out by former Hillary Clinton's attorney, Mark Elias, to disqualify him from running for president in the future. Elias tweeted out that this could disqualify him as a future president. Now, legal scholars like Jonathan Turley have said nonsense. That would be unconstitutional. But it doesn't matter if Donald Trump is enveloped in yet another allegation, another investigation. He is stuck in the mire. He is drugged down into the mud. He's distracted from campaigning for president. Why? Why take down Donald Trump? Because according to a report just a few weeks ago in Axios, the plans for the second Trump administration is to dismantle the administrative state to reclassify some 50,000 federal employees that exist beyond the change in political parties, beyond the change in the presidency. 50,000 of 2 million employees who dictate policy, not a surgical knife, a butcher knife, to the permanency of power of Washington, D.C. Upset the natural order. That is unacceptable. That is why Donald Trump, always the outsider, 
is unacceptable. And that's why this story is unprecedented. For more on stories like this, go check out the Will Cain podcast at Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News podcast, or watch the Will Cain podcast on YouTube. I'll see you over there. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.